Some of you may not be sure whether to cry or cheer about this, but today we will complete our series through James. <laughs> Wait a minute, what are you saying there? It's been a challenging series, but uh, hopefully you've grown through it as I know I have. Today we'll cover the last two verses in the book along with a couple other verses that we didn't get to earlier. The verses we have left all deal with the fact that we are in this together. When it comes to the Christian life, nobody, and I mean nobody, should ever need to go it alone. Aren't you thankful that we have each other? So I'm not the only one who, who feels more and, and more isolated within an almost foreign culture? Am I the only one who feels like an island disappearing with the tide? How about the younger folks? Can you imagine growing up in this? I mean, seriously, we have a lot of younger folks at Go Church. They had, we had 20 at the thing on Wednesday, counting the, counting the leaders. Or 20. I mean, I, I know of church plants that would ha be happy to have 20 total, period, in, come. And we had 20, 20 kids and adults at the uh, day camp thing that they did on Wednesday. We have a lot, of, a lot of younger people. Think about how they feel uh, in their schools, among their peers, I mean, to be a committed Christian as a millennial uh, or as Gen Z, well, it's like being a ring bearer, if you know the reference. It is to be alone, or at least to feel alone. Following the biblical Jesus increasingly feels like something we have to do alone in the world. That's why it's so important that we stay connected as Christians because we are utterly surrounded by a lost world. That's reality. Knowing we would be hated and misunderstood, Jesus gave us the church. Ecclesia in Greek, which means assembly. assembly. It means gathering. And it has nothing to do with a building Though it is important to have a place to meet, a place to gather, a place to assemble, the word for church describes a faith community spending time together, a team on a mission in the world, a people who have come together in Christ. We are not alone. We are the church, and specifically, we are a local assembly of Christ followers who have joined together with a common mission and a vision to become something more tomorrow than we are today. We are not alone. We are gathered. We are assembled. We are together. We are here for each other. I actually want to ask, I want to ask everybody in the front to turn around and look around. Just turn around and look around. See that you're not alone. Just look way back there in the back where half the church is, okay? <laughs> You're not alone. We're not alone. You and I have the privilege of belonging to a spiritual family, members of a mission team, and ours is called Go Church. Since it's absolutely true that we no longer fit in with the world, 
and that we are isolated from them in many ways. We must learn to live in community with each other. We're not alone. But the church is not a hideout either. We're not to hole up in complacency, feeding each other's anger toward and fear of the rest of the world. We're called to help each other follow Jesus better and better out there. To join together on a mission to seek and save the lost. We must learn to coax each other to love and good deeds. We must hold each other accountable in love and we must teach each other the truth. But above all, in order for any of that to happen, we must be together. We need to help and we need to allow ourselves to be helped. We need to learn how to speak and we need to learn how to listen. We need to correct and we need to learn how to be corrected. We need to speak the truth and hear the truth. We need to learn the difference between accountability and criticism, between humble correction and arrogant judgment, between guidance and condemnation, between gossip and care. But again, as we work toward these ideals more than anything, we must remember that we are in this together. Knowing this, James closes the words of his letter to the church, to a church, I might add, to a specific church, his church, which now has been applied to many other churches such as ours. And he writes this letter and he closes it with these words. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I wonder how many times we have been turned from the errors of our ways simply by studying this 2,000-year-old book over the last several months. Has not Pastor James drawn us back from error and reminded us of the truth? If that is the case, you may never know the extent of the danger you've been saved from. Perhaps even a multitude of sins has been covered because you've been called back to the narrow way of Jesus Christ. Now let's break these closing verses down and think carefully about what is being said. First, who is being addressed? James writes, my brothers, if one of you. The first word in this sentence translated here is two words. My brothers is one of the biblical greetings used to address the church. The more literal one word translation is brethren, which I prefer. But this translation says, my brothers, regardless, know that this is a greeting to the entire church, including men, women, and children. The family of God is what is meant by brethren. That's what he would have meant by it. We ought to understand the uniqueness of this greeting. Secular Greek literature didn't start paragraphs with this word. James writes to a family of believers people who are committed to each other and joined by the common bond of faith in Jesus as Messiah, which makes us all adopted children of God, brothers and sisters. So remember that James is talking to the spiritual family known as the church when he says what he says in the rest of the text. This is about how we can help each other in the church. Second, notice that it is possible for someone who is a committed part of the church family to stray away from the truth. He says, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth. Is it possible for a believer to wander from the truth? 
Oh, is it ever. How do you wander from truth? Well, mostly by listening to lies. This is particularly true for new believers, but it can happen to anyone. That's just how fragile we are on our own. When we give ear to enough lies, we begin to wander from the truth. Ask a Christian teenager or college student, how long does it take at school or wherever you hear the opposite of what the Bible says to begin to wander from the truth? And why do young believers seem to wonder most when they go off to college? Isn't it partly because they typically leave their church, their youth group, and move away? What happens when a sheep leaves the fold? Have you ever found yourself caught between churches for like 20 years? How far did you wander from the truth during that time? So if wandering from the truth is so easy, what can we do to avoid it? I've already hinted at the answer, but let me map it out for you by giving you two steps. To avoid wandering from truth, first, number one, stay close to Christ. And second, stay close to Christ's followers. Stay close to Christ and stay close to Christ's followers if you want to avoid wandering from truth. So first of all, we need to understand that the truth is a person. Did you catch that? To wander from truth is to wander from Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth, and his teaching is truth. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as we stay close to Jesus, the truth of who he is and of his teaching is always flowing into our hearts from him, setting us free from the bondage and the lies of this world which are so prevalent. He is the great shepherd, and shepherds keep the sheep close. If we wander, by definition, we wander from Jesus. It's like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, prone to leave the God I love. If you're wandering from the truth, you can be sure that you are wandering from Jesus. The world is the current domain of Satan, and therefore the world saturates us with his subtle lies. And since we can't get away from the world, we need a constant supply of truth from Christ while we live in it. The truth of Christ is available through his word and by the Holy Spirit. If you'll listen this morning, you will get at least one dose. The Apostle Paul talks about this concept. Speaking of the church, he writes in Colossians chapter 2, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. To verse 6, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So according to this passage, how do we avoid being taken captive by deception? How do we avoid wandering from the truth? Look at the underlined portion for the answer in your listening guide. We avoid captivity to lies by staying rooted in Christ 
in whom rests all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We stay rooted to Christ by spending time in his word, by listening to him through prayer, and by seeking him and his purposes for our lives above all the other things that scream for our attention. And yet I'm here to tell you the surprising truth that this is not enough. What did he say? That's right. I'm telling you that your attempts to stay close to Christ as a solitary individual will not likely prevent you from wandering from the truth. You are going to need the second step. How do I know that? The New Testament writers all assume that you're going to require help from somebody who can actually grab you by the arm. Look back at our text for today. James assumes that some of the brethren are going to wander, right? And he also assumes that other flesh and blood human beings are going to be required to go get them. Look at the rest of the verse. First verse of our text it says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back. The word someone in this verse is obviously a flesh and blood person, a fellow believer from the same church, someone who knows and loves this person enough to have a chance at bringing them back. James is assuming something here about the way the church should operate. He is assuming that we are in this together. We are not alone. That's why I'm telling you that one of the best ways to avoid wandering from the truth is to stay close to other followers of Christ. And we're not only to try to avoid wandering ourselves, but also to watch out for our friends, our brothers and sisters. If we see one of them wandering from the truth, we're to do our best to bring them back. That means getting involved, doesn't it? This could get messy. This is about as countercultural as it gets. Right? I mean, who am I to say anything to you about what you are doing? How dare I? I should mind my own business. How do I know what the truth is anyway? I should just be me and let you be you. I should never even insinuate that you might be going in the wrong direction. Is there even a wrong direction? The devil is cunning. He has all but destroyed the functionality of the church by making truth speaking utterly taboo, and he's killed two birds with one stone. Not only has he been able to silence us in the world, but he has even succeeded in silencing us, silencing us inside the church. It's so much easier to just let someone wander away, isn't it? But there's another reason we keep quiet. And that is because it is so difficult to do this in the right way. Oh, the myriad ways of doing this wrong. After all, we'd have to sit down and have a serious one-on-one -on -one conversation, like face-to-face. -face. Who still does that? Some people don't even do that with their own kids. They'll, they'll figure it out. But seriously, think of all the wrong ways to do this. Social media, wrong way. Email, wrong way. Asking someone else to pray about it, wrong way. Telling the pastor to do something, wrong way. <laughs> Harsh words, wrong way. With arrogance, wrong. Anonymously, wrong. Without love, wrong way. While you're doing similar things yourself, wrong way. 
When will we ever learn to speak the truth in love the way the Bible says we should? When will we ever learn this in the church? How powerful and unique a spiritual community we could become if we could only learn this one thing. Speaking of what the church can become, the Bible says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. I suppose some churches are full of those who speak the truth in criticism and condemnation. Often what they say isn't even the truth of God, but more of an opinion about a less important matter. Other churches appear to be very loving without speaking the truth, the possibility of which is debatable. But what if we could get this right? What if Christians really learned to speak the truth in love to each, to each other, one-on-one? -on -one? We might even become the church Jesus had in mind. James speaks of bringing back a brother or sister who is wandering from the truth, straying from the way of Christ. And this is a vital part of being the church. But as mentioned, doing this right is a very fine line to walk, and doing this wrong may even be worse than not doing it at all. So how exactly do we help a Christian brother or sister who we believe is wandering from the truth? Let me point out a few very important biblical guidelines for bringing back wanderers. And we will find these in our texts. First of all, avoid slandering, speaking against, and judging the wanderer. I'm drawing those words straight out of one of the two other passages that we haven't covered yet in James. Here at the end, he talks about bringing a brother or sister back onto the straight and narrow. But back in chapter 4, James also said this, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? These verses in turn point back to chapter 2, verse 8, where James quotes Jesus saying that we have done right when we love our neighbor as ourselves. James calls this the royal law there. James is saying that if you slander, speak against, or judge your brother, you're not loving your neighbor, and therefore you are slandering, speaking against, and judging the royal law, which is the law to love our neighbors as ourselves. Slandering, speaking against, and judging other believers it is as if you think the law of love is not good enough without the help of your criticism and condemnation. In other words, if your effort to bring back a wanderer isn't based completely in love, it rubs against the law of God and therefore winds up working against God. Paul even said in Romans 13.10 that the whole law is summed up with this because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Let me tell you, this royal law is being violated a whole lot in the Christian world right now. And there are many famous Christian leaders who are completely ignoring these verses. I would name them, but then I would be guilty of the same sin. <laughs> the point is that we really need to remember these verses about not judging each other. And by the way, Jesus said the same thing. Practically everything James ever said was straight from Jesus. That would be a good thing 
if that was true of me, wouldn't it? So first, we must avoid slander, even as we try to bring someone back to the way of truth. Maybe that seems obvious, but our tendency in these situations is to exaggerate someone else's error, is it not? Oh, I would never slander someone, are you sure? Because if you're guessing a little at what you think they're doing wrong, and your guess is a little off, that's slander. Besides, James says we should never even speak against our brother or sister to anyone else in the first place, so that means there won't even be an opportunity for slander because we won't be talking to anyone about it. This is where we almost always mess up, right? In the church, how novel would it be to literally go directly to the person without saying one single word to one single other person? That shouldn't be novel. That should be the norm. You really want to bring the person back from wondering? Don't say a word to anyone else. Lastly, in verse 12, James says we're simply not to judge other believers at all. I wonder if there's some way around this. Maybe I can dig into the Greek, figure out that it doesn't really mean what it actually says. No, it does. But don't we have to judge each other in the church? Didn't Paul even say so? He did. But what did he mean? I don't have time to fully explain what Paul meant in that passage, but I can tell you he did not mean to contradict what James said, which is just a reworking of what Jesus said. Bottom line, James means exactly what he says here, that we're not to judge our brothers and sisters. It's one thing to make a judgment about what is sinful and what is not sinful based on Scripture, or to practice good judgment in how to approach a complicated situation or maybe good judgment about who should be in one leadership role or another. You know, this type of judging between right and wrong is absolutely necessary and biblical, but it's another thing to pronounce judgment upon a person. Because you think their sin is so obvious and worse than your own, or someone somehow uh, it's more damning. You've decided that there's no possible way around the fact that that they are sinning in ways that need, to be, that need to be pointed out, that need to be judged. And, and you're looking down on them, disappointed with them, until maybe you even go so far as to draw conclusions about their salvation, as if you had the authority. Let me just say, you don't. James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? And that's a great question. Who are you? I can tell you who you are not. You are not the judge. God is the judge. God is the judge. We live in a season when judgmental pastors and teachers are praised and followed as heroes by many in the church. Judgmental pastors have quite a following today. They are thought of as truth-tellers, praised for their boldness. But if they are attacking other believers and even judging them as potentially unsaved, they are not living the truth even as they supposedly tell it. You better be careful who you follow because you will eventually be like them. And the Bible says you'll be judged by the same measure as you judge. Now again, I'm not talking about judging between what is right and what is wrong or using good judgment to help someone who's wandering from the truth. I'm talking about judging other people that is deciding how good or bad, right or wrong, guilty or not guilty, they are. 
Jesus, James, and Paul all warned against judging others. Listen, Jesus was much harder on judgmental people than he was on notorious sinners. And he, he said, judge not, lest you be judged. Why would you be judged for judging? <laughs> because God is the judge, and impersonating God is not a good idea. I'll say it again. God is the judge. You are not. That means you can just take the responsibility of judging others right off of your shoulders. And so can I. Because we are not the judge. So the first guideline for bringing back wonders, wanderers is to avoid slandering them, speaking against them, and judging them. To understand the second guideline, let's look back at our primary passage for today, a little bit more of it this time. James writes, My brothers, if one of you should wander from truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way. All right, what else can we see here? We can see that James is talking about sin. So the second guideline for bringing back wanderers is this, don't confuse sin with faults. In turning a sinner from the error of his way, we're talking about someone who is wandering into disobedience, wandering away from Christ, away from the truth, a brother or sister who is sinning, to be clear. That means they are disobeying the established, obvious commands of God. We are not talking about someone who has a personality that gets on your nerves or whose Christian character is not fully developed yet. Good luck changing someone's personality or character with criticism, by the way. It does not work. We all have personality flaws. Nobody has perfect character. We all have weak moments. Some hide flaws better than others, which means nothing. Just means they're good at hiding it. Beyond that, sometimes the very personality you don't like is exactly what God needs on his team. I can guarantee a lot of people did not like the, the personality of the Apostle Paul. I can also guarantee that many folks tried to change his personality thinking they could help him be better. They were wrong. God used Paul just the way he was. What James is talking about here and what Paul talks about with the phrase speaking the truth in love has nothing to do with other people's faults. This is about helping someone who's beginning to dabble in or is already for fully engaged in clear-cut sinful behavior. This is about helping restore those who have strayed from the way of Christ. And so before you go diving into this otherwise noble effort, you better make sure you're dealing with sin and a straying heart because while, while helping bring back sinners is a good thing, attacking people's faults utterly destroys a church family. And make no mistake, church families are almost always destroyed from within, usually by well-meaning people. The Bible says always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. I think I get that right most of the time, but oh, that one time when I don't can do so much damage. Let me say it again. We are not to try to guide people away from those things that we perceive as faults. No, we are to make allowance for those. We're to guide people away from sin. 
and to guide people back to the way of truth, but not from their faults and flaws. We would do well to remember those verses. Let me add this also. Wandering is directional. It's directional. Wandering means someone's going in the wrong direction. Listen to me. New believers do not suddenly get zapped into sinlessness. I hope we always have some new believers around here. What this means is that there will be sin. The question is whether a person is moving in the right direction or if they're wandering off in the wrong direction. I can promise you that the Philippian jailer did not the next day after salvation have all of his sinful activities removed from his life. He probably got rid of his household idols one at a time. And the one he cared about the most was the last to go about three years later, probably, if you follow me. People need time to grow. And meanwhile, guess what? There will be some sin still going on. The question is whether there is progress. Or maybe the question is whether they're ready to learn in that area. But just because there is sin does not mean it's time to confront them. The question is, are they wandering? This text is about people who are starting to wander in the wrong direction, not so much people who are growing but not quite there yet, which at any rate is all of us. The third guideline for bringing back wanderers is found in the very last words of the book of James. Again, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So the third guideline is this. Don't let wounded soldiers die. As Christians, sometimes we're guilty of leaving our wounded soldiers on the battlefield or even putting them out of their misery or our misery rather than having to mess with the tiresome process of carrying them back to the medical tent. Sin brings injury and eventually death, but James says we can actually save our brothers and sisters in Christ from death if we can turn them back in the right direction. I think this idea of saving people from death can mean two different things and both at the same time. First, there is spiritual death. Sin separates us from a holy God. It gets in the way of our relationship with Him and brings deadness into our spiritual life. When we help guide a friend back to the truth, we guide him or her back to life in Christ. This doesn't mean we're saving the person's soul or that a person can ever become unsaved once they are saved, but it does mean that when a saved person starts to wonder, we can help keep them from arriving at the extreme of spiritual deadness. By the way, this is your responsibility. If you're a part of an actual church family, this part is on your shoulders. This is your job. James is talking to the church, not a conference of pastors. It's your job to bring back wanderers. And you need to learn to do it right. Just think, you can actually go out there. This is how much you can matter as a believer and a member of a church. You could be the one to go out there and save your brothers and sisters from wandering into spiritual deadness. That's the church being the church. But secondly, we should also let this remind us not just about spiritual death, but that some sin can lead to physical death. 1 John 5, 16 tells us there is a sin leading to death. And remember the passage last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul said that some of the believers had sinned themselves into sickness and others had even sinned to the point of dying. 
Scripture is clear that even for a believer, sin can bring physical death upon us prematurely. Some sin can actually lead to a premature physical death. And if you can turn someone away from that kind of sin, you will have literally saved their life. My Aunt Melody died when she was in her 40s. The doctor said she literally drank herself to death. She'd been a closet alcoholic. There's no doubt in my mind that she knew Jesus. She was saved by grace through faith in Christ. But she still wandered away from truth to the point of death. By the way, if you're deciding someone who professes faith in Christ cannot be a Christian, you are judging them. Which is a sin. You are judging that individual person. How much sin is too much until you can't believe that they're saved? Do you even realize what you're doing? You are judging in the blind. You have no idea how much sin it takes to prove someone's not a Christian, do you? Well, they couldn't possibly be a Christian. How do you know that? Who do you think you are? How bad does it have to be? You don't know. You have no idea. Who are you to judge? Answer, you are nobody to judge. God is the judge. Back to the point, my aunt died in her early 40s because of sin. It's true. Some sin leads to death. And if you can turn someone from it, you will have saved their life. Now, the fact that God gave people the ability to choose means we won't always be able to bring them back when they wander from truth. But in her case, at least I know that people tried for years. She didn't listen, and she died. But how many of our wounded soldiers do we just let die without even trying? Or how many do we write off as beyond help? Look back at our text one more time. James says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When you turn a sinner from the error of his, his or her ways, you not only can save them from death, but you can cover over a multitude of sins. I really had to think about what this could possibly mean. I found part of my answer in another biblical principle, which is this. Sin is contagious. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Paul was talking about sin being contagious in the church family, and, and it is. Sin is contagious. We really could use a new kind of mask around here one that protects us from each other's sins. But would you wear it? So what does it mean when James says that if we can guide one of our spiritual family members back to the truth and away from sin, we will have covered over a multitude of sins. Notice he doesn't say we would have covered over a multitude of that person's sins. He just says we will have covered over a multitude of of sins. I think James has in mind that when one of us wanders into sin, it affects us all as a church family. And that if we aren't careful, others will begin to fall into the same sin, multiplying it like yeast in the dough until there's a multitude of sins to be dealt with and to, rather than just the original problem. And so if we are able to bring back this brother or sister to the way of Christ, we will have potentially pre prevented an outbreak of sin 
in our church body. By the way, does the danger of an outbreak justify you being judgmental toward that person who seems to be straying into sin? Answer, no. But it is true that sin is contagious, and that should motivate us to attempt to help someone in the right way. So what kinds of sins are you thinking about right now? I know what kinds of sins I tend to think about, and I figure most of you are thinking about those kinds of sins, but have you considered also the sin of self-righteousness? Have you considered the sin of the other brother or only the sins of the prodigal son? Just a thought for some of us who tend to be fairly moral while sinning in ways that are a little bit harder to point out. Regardless of the type of sin, we should be highly motivated to reach out to the wanderers among us. We can't just let our wounded soldiers bleed out on the battlefield. We must attempt to save them, and we must do it in the right way. The final guideline for bringing back wanderers that I'll share is simply this. All we can do is try. All we can do is try. This is implied in what James says. He doesn't give us any guarantees that we are always going to be able to help someone back to the truth. He says, if you are able there'll be good results. He knows as well as we do that it's just, it just isn't always going to work. Now listen, if a person responds negatively to your loving attempt, usually the best thing to do is just drop it. You did your part. Sometimes people come around in time. God respects the choices of man and so must we. It's always possible too that you were wrong in your assessment of the situation. You never have all the information Maybe your timing was just bad. Maybe you didn't see as clearly as you thought you did. Maybe the person needs a little space to let your words sink in. And then again, maybe the person just isn't going to listen. I'm going to say it one more time. If you're being judgmental in your approach, you may be a bigger problem in the church than the one who seems to be straying. If we remember our own sinfulness and the grace we receive every day, we will do better than if all we're looking at is the other person's problem. There's only one other verse that we have not covered in the book of James. From chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more severely, more strictly. This fits into the idea that we're in this together because we includes those of us who teach. James is simply saying that teachers in the church must not be living in sin. I do believe he's mostly talking about those who teach the entire church here, those who teach from a position of authority like himself. In other words, preaching pastors. In other words, gulp. He's mostly talking about me. There's an ancient Jewish saying that goes something like this. If a rabbi lives like an angel, they will seek Torah teaching from him. If he does not, they will not seek Torah from him. Hmm. I found that saying a few years ago, and it's haunted me ever since. But it's haunted me in a good way, reminding me not to take the position and calling God has given me for granted. And to remember that those who do not practice what they preach have little impact. As another verse says, I'm supposed to stay above reproach, though I'm quite sure you could find something reproachful if you try. But also let me remind you that the one who will judge me more strictly is not you. 
Who is the judge? Could you just say it with me? Who is the judge? God is the judge. How does all this fit with the last two verses of James? Well, it fits because this too is a reminder that we're in this together. We are in this together. We all have jobs to do. As your pastor, I have a role to play in this ecclesia, this church family. My role is to help you be the church, to equip you to be the church. But we're all to help each other stay on track. We're all to be looking out for each other. We're all to speak the truth to each other in love. We're to watch for wanderers, and we are to care enough to take the risk in attempting to bring them back in a loving way. The Bible says pastors are to shepherd the church. But again, James wasn't talking to pastors when he said anyone who helps bring someone back may have saved their life. He was talking to the whole church. I would say then that I must be a shepherd of shepherds because the implication of the last two verses of James is that you are called to shepherd each other as well. So how are you doing with shepherding each other. You say, I don't even know anybody. That's a problem. Church is not something you just attend and watch. How are you doing with shepherding each other? We are in this thing together. Only together can we be the church Jesus had in mind. Only together can we walk the road Jesus called us to walk. Together and only together we can do this. As I close, let me plug Go Groups once more. Coming soon, as soon as it is legal, we will launch Go Groups. We were going to launch on March 15th. Can you believe that? That was when it was going to launch. And we wait. But when it's legal, we will launch Go Groups. And if you want to apply most of what the Bible says about being the church, you will need to join one. I'm out of time today. But I hope you'll really pray about joining a group when the time comes. That's where you'll be able to know and be known by others in your church family. That's where you might even be able to help turn someone back to the truth or to be turned back yourself. I think the book of James was just what we needed during this season. But I'm glad to be finished and excited about what is next. If you want to know what is next, You'll just have to show up next Sunday. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to apply it. Maybe somebody today even knows they need to take action. I pray that they follow what your word says and do it the right way. Lord, we're still becoming a church here. We're still a baby. Maybe we're a toddler by now, a couple years old. Make us into the church that you have in mind, the church the Bible talks about. Help us grow together in love. Help us to get to those points where we can actually speak the truth to each other in the right way and help each other and spur each other on and bear each other's burdens and all of the things that we're supposed to do as a church that we can do. I can see little glimpses of it. it. It's happening a little bit here and there. But Lord, just let it explode. Let us become that kind of church, the kind of church we've learned about, uh, both in the Acts series and in this James series. God, make us that church. And each one of us is responsible for helping that to happen. So help each one of us to be the church to each other going forward. 
for the several who are attending tonight in a, a class in my house uh, to think about joining the church and becoming members. Uh, I pray that, that that is a bonding time for those. And that at, for those of us who have made commitments already and, and joined the church and made a commitment to the church, Lord, help us to be serious about it. It starts by being here on Sundays, and all these folks are here today, so thank you for them. Lord, help us to take next steps as we go along and be in a group and, and look for opp the opportunities that we have to do mission projects and different things, and just to be involved. Just help us, Lord, to grow, to grow stronger together. Even in this time, maybe because of this time, we need each other more than ever. And so help us. Lord, for those that may be here today who are never really have become a follower of Jesus, um, well, I haven't really talked about that today. It's just not where the text led us. So, Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here today that has questions, that wants to know more about, well, how do I even, you know, start, that they'll let me know so we can have a conversation, even through email if that's more comfortable. But I pray for that person, there might be an action step, that they might take a step just to ask a question. What is it? Talk to me about this. I pray that would happen. Thank you for the, all that you've done. Thank you for who we're becoming. We, we just surrendered all to Jesus in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.